Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, and, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to say a very good morning to A.B. Bishop. Morning, A.B. Hi, Pam. How are you? Really well. It's exciting. A bit more drizzle. I keep thinking we have moved into spring, but apparently we haven't. We keep regressing again and back into winter for a little bit and <laughs> then back into spring again, so it's rather nice, though. It's the frost that's getting me oh. because... Because the pla- I still can't cut them back because we've, we've had a heavy frost only a couple of days ago. And um, oh, some of my things, I keep looking at them thinking, are you going to sprout from the base or have you really completely gone this time? That's exactly and what's happened to my salvias. Com- my salvias I'm talking about. Yeah, completely yes. black, but I see yeah. new growth already. Do you? Uh, my passion fruit, uh, I, I missed covering. I usually cover with a couple of layers of uh, frost cloth. I missed it this year, but oh, no. there was no, but there wasn't really those real frosty frosts. And then... I checked my phone and there was going to be a, a major frost. I thought, oh, quickly run out, co- cover them up, frost overnight. So I saved the passion fruit, thank goodness. Oh, well done. Yeah, would have got divorced if they'd been. Uh... <laughs> well, you lost you lost them, I think, the first year you planted them, didn't you? Oh, a cu- for a few, a few years, years, yeah. Yes. And I kept planting them in, you know, the wrong spot and blah de blah um, but now I've got them trained up on a um, on a trellis, and uh, and they're just they're going magnificently. Fantastic. Yeah. So with a um, Belladeria scandens and, and appleberry, I might add, oh. which is yeah has really took off over over winter. So um, yeah, so that's a, a native little native vine, nice Fantastic. gentle one. That's yeah with with edible fruits. I thought I'll chuck a, a native on there as well. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's uh, very very pleased that. Um, I mean yeah, the the backhousia citriodora last year got absolutely trounced by the frost. Uh, this year completely fine. So it's obviously settled in well, thank goodness. But uh, yeah, but uh, salvias will be getting a bit of a haircut pretty soon. <laughs> Quite a severe one at my Quite place. Quite a severe one, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what salvias have you got there that you've? Ah, oh, it's some of the bigger ones that seem to be more affected. Yeah, yeah. The, the ones closer to the ground seem to have, have you know, survived much more readily. Okay, so, with um, the taller growing ones. The taller growing yeah, ones, yeah, okay. yeah seem yeah. to have really, really been knocked back hard. Yeah. But Anyway, yeah, we persevere. <laughs> we do, yeah. we do. We're growing, quite growing silly, these plants that we shouldn't be growing. I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll learn one day. <laughs> <laughs> we have to say a very good morning to Jeremy Francis. Morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, everyone. Oh, and I bet uh, spring's really sprung in the dandenongs. Well, it's, well it, it was uh, warm yesterday. It was the first day without a jumper <clears> in several months. Yes. And... Um, well, uh, having said that, we're running about two, three weeks behind. It has been cool, and and it's drying out too as well. And so, now we've been busy. In fact, I've, I've been suspicious of this uh, coming season all the way through. <laughs> so we've been busy, busy, uh, busy all all through winter, just cleaning up, cleaning out all the dry wood, and just just sorting out areas of the garden we've never really tackled in. 26 years or whatever Oh, gosh. <laughs> you really have been busy. Yeah, well, it's amazing. Yeah, there's truckloads of material, which um, um, just taking everything back to leaf litter and just making sure there's no 
heavier materials. Uh, no, no, nothing which can cause problems over the summer. Yep, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, I, I just don't trust what's, what the weather's throwing at us at oh, the moment. No. Uh, lots of rain in Western Australia, mm. but, um, well... It's not coming across. Yeah, we, we, I actually... Um, flew across to Western Australia a few weeks ago via Sydney, uh, courtesy of a certain airline. (laughs) (laughs) That thought we liked to go via Sydney, and so we wasted wasted about 12 hours um, flying to Sydney, circling around. Isn't that Uh, annoying? It was back in July, and what absolutely staggered me was I could not see a skerrick of green from uh, within a few minutes of leaving... uh, uh, the Great Divide of Victoria, it just turned into mm. into dry grass all the way. Right. And all around Sydney, just nothing. Yes. It, it, was, it was a bit of a shock. Yes. And then across the WA and rain everywhere. It was <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It, 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 you know. We might squeak through. We've had a whole run of series uh, of, of nice summers now for, uh, since 2010. But mm. uh, no, I thought just get fuel load down. I think we might be in mm. for a beauty this year somehow. Well, it's yeah. You can. We've been. The weather's so erratic nowadays, and 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 the one thing Victoria has been receiving is that this little drift of rain that's been coming through from the Timor Sea or mm. through with inland Western Australia through South Australia, and that's been keeping our summers quite nice. And oh uh, well, knock on wood, we might have another one. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. Yep. Yep. Okay. We've also got to uh, say a very good morning to Richard Austin from Australian Native Org. Australasian Native Orchid Society. I always, I always do that, don't I, Richard? <laughs> That's it. That's it, Pam. But good morning, Pam. Yeah, and uh, of course, there's a very good reason why you're here today. Um, annually, I drag you in because uh, it means you've got a big show coming up next weekend. That's correct. Yes, the 29th and the 30th of September. Hopefully, it'll be a nice, bright, sunny weekend, and uh, the big spring show will be underway mm. at the Mount Waverley Community Centre. That's right opposite Mount Waverley Station, so two good options. You can either drive in or you can jump on the train and, mm. and, uh, and uh, just jump off and walk through the front doors. So, uh, and the other great thing for us this year as a society is we're also celebrating our 50th year. That's amazing. Which is a pretty good milestone. Oh, it and, is. Well um, done. Things have, things have rolled on and developed well. But look, just echoing the sentiments of, of the weather, um, the dryness... We have, unfortunately, because we have monthly outings with our different groups, you know, looking at terrestrials in particular out Mm. in the bush, um, we've had to cancel so many of those this year, especially around the autumn time and coming into early winter because there was just insufficient plants around. Fortunately, we're well organised, you see, because some of these, um, you know, relatively short trips, some of them might be a few hours drive and we have our scouts that go out beforehand and all our members that want to go on these particular outings register with us and um, if it's cancelled or things aren't right, we can just let them all know and save them, you know, a lot of heartache. Mm. So that's that's one of the, the good things about doing it that way, but it has been disappointing. Yes, So also. we definitely need that rain, <coughs> definitely. <coughs> Yeah. Oh gosh, yes. Well, we're much lower in rainfall than um, you know previous uh, previous months, aren't we? I mean, it's it's snuck years. up on us, hasn't yeah. it? I've, I've noticed it in the garden, even 
you know, I've, I've got a patch of green hoods in my garden, a big, big patch, and um, normally they're, they're sort of at their peak around about now, but they're basically finished. Mm. And because I let them get natural rainfall, I can give them supplementary water, but I didn't didn't worry. And they were much smaller plants this year, mm-hmm. nowhere near as vigorous. Still plenty of them, mm. but and they're they've all they've all starting to yellow off and die back. Yeah, because all those little all those little green hoods and all the rest of it is assiduous. They go through a annual cycle of dying back to a little tuber, and uh, kick off again in the in the autumn time and uh, go from there. Mm. So mm. yeah, it, it's it's really showing up, really showing up. Mm. Goodness me. Okay, well, um, Jeremy, we should we should mention before before I get started on other community announcements that um, you've got a big um, spring garden weekend coming up at Cloud Hill. Yep, the diggers weekend. Yes, yes, thirteenth and fourteenth of October. Yep, thirteenth and fourteenth of October. So it's uh, it, it's it's something that diggers the diggers club have been uh, running at Cloud Hill now for several years uh, since they've um, been running the nursery there. Uh, so there's lots of uh, little mini workshops on various subjects. There, there are tomatoes and uh, and clematis and um, flowers, germinating flower, uh, uh, plants from seed, um, citrus, of course, berries, little bits and pieces happening all through both of those days. Mm. And we're going to have Ronnie uh, with his uh, peonies as well. That's and, exciting. And I, hope, I hope that people manage to catch Ronnie Buckle. Uh, his segment on the ABC gardening program, when was it, about three weeks ago, four yes, weeks yes. back? Um, yes, I'm very familiar with Roddy and, and I've walked around that nursery many, many times and, and he, I, I, know, I can say that he lives in one of the igloos for, he hibernates in one of the igloos every winter. <laughs> and that's, that's, you'll find him there and propagating his peonies as hard as he can go. And he spent the last, what, 25, 20, 30 years coming to grips with peonies. And uh, he's actually got to the point where he's, well, he's checked down just about every blinking penny you can think of. <laughs> and they're all lurking somewhere in that nursery. And some of the new intersectionals, which are the very exciting ones that's, that he's that's, just been that's, working Everyone's with. very excited mm. about them. So these are the Ito hybrids or the intersectionals. So they're hybrids between trees and herbaceous. Mm. And they, these are going to be the ultimate garden plants for Melbourne because I they think don't so. need any winter chilling. Yes. And they just burst out of the... Um, out of their crown and, and they're and flowering the very, very, huge. yeah, flowering very quickly too. Yeah, flowering yeah. with a, with a 10, 12, 15 flowers within two or three years. Mm. And compact and, ah. <laughs> anyway, come along and Ronnie will tell you everyone all about his, yes. his No, it's, it's very exciting. I know, um, for years, um, I, you know, when I was talking to some of the gardeners in the community gardens, um, all the gardeners of, of um, Chinese descent, all they wanted to be able to do was grow herbaceous peonies, and we kept saying, you just won't get away with it in Melbourne. But um, now, of course, I think everyone will be jumping on board with these yeah, that, new that, ones. That, that's absolutely right. Yeah, the herbaceous peonies, the, the problem with them is they're very easy to propagate, so they're readily available. And, and, and so many times I've heard stories of people growing them for 15, 20 years and never seeing a flower on them. Yes. Oh, why, why bother? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, I've heard uh, stories. You know, of... Hoping, hoping. Yeah. I mean, it was a joke. We said, well, throw party ice on them. Yeah, well, and then I've a, heard then that. A couple, people a couple used of years to do later, it. people were coming back and saying, I've got them. T- 
Wow. <laughs> yes. Thank you for making that suggestion. We thought we were joking. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse for more parties. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true, but yeah, yeah it's but, but, fantastic. Uh, on the other hand, the trees, uh, there were a couple of famous collectionists of tree pennies. Well, uh, one was at Oliver's Hill right in the bay. That you, you, people walking along the, the beach looking, looking up from uh, Port Phillip Bay, there were tree pennies flowering. They, they don't have any chilling requirements whatsoever mm. to flower them. And that's the beauty of these new hybrids as they follow the trees in that regard at least. Mm. So, very exciting and ah, all absolutely. sorts of other things happening. So, yeah, that's mm. great. Okay. Well, I'm going to get to some more community announcements because, as you can imagine, being springtime, there is a lot going on. <laughs> so, uh, so, bear with me. Um, if you haven't planned anything to do for the weekend, I'll have quite a few suggestions. First up, of course, uh, Tesla's Tulip Festival is on. That's running right through until the 14th of October. It's open 10 a.m. through to 5 p.m. Uh, they're situated at 357 Monbulk Road in Sylvan. Melway's reference there is 123B5. And uh, they were, I noticed they were on Gardening Australia last night. So, uh, so it looks like the tulips have opened up beautifully and uh, would be a great sight. Lots of colour there. So, uh, as I say, that's running. Uh, now, also on this weekend is the Yay Garden Expo. This takes place in the sale yard surrounds there at Yay. Uh, it's, uh, again, today, 10 through till 4. Entry is $5 for adults. Children are free. There's free parking. And... Um, they're covering uh, a huge range of plants and trees, things like garden sculptures, uh, tools, seedlings, mulch, fertilisers, composts. Um, there'll be nurseries represented, designers will be there. There'll be gardening books, um, uh, a plant crèche. There's a speakers program, food and drink available. If you want more information, you can jump onto their website, www.yaygardenexpo, all one word, .com.au Now also on this afternoon uh, Friends of Burnley Gardens um, are running a walk and talk Horticultural Identities in the Kew Cemetery Now this is taking place at 2 o'clock this afternoon Now I don't know if this place is still available um, but the easy way to find out is to um, to uh, phone or email Helen Page. Um, uh, her email address is helenpage at bigpond.com or her phone number is 0418-546-979. I'll give that phone number again, 0418-546-979. And... Uh, they're going to be, it's going to be a guided walk through the, uh, the Kew Cemetery looking at lots of graves of different people of, uh, famous horticultural identities. So, uh, it should be a very interesting mm. afternoon. Uh, the cost is $20 if you're a f- member of the Friends Group, $25 for non-members. Uh, so, of course, uh, a reminder that uh, Stephen's Garden is open this weekend uh, to Gurium. The address is 8 to 10 Centenary Avenue in Macedon. Um, now, it's open 
10am this morning through to 4.30 this afternoon. Entry is $8, children under 18 free, students $5. There will also be botanic artwork by Craig Lidgewood on display. There will be book sales and morning and afternoon teas available. Uh, Now, also on this afternoon, and again, I'm not sure if this is booked out, but I will mention it. Um, It's uh, designed specially because school holidays are on at the moment, and this is something that could be of great interest to, uh, to children as well as adults. And this is a talk um, entitled Microbats in Your Backyard with Dr. Casey Visentin. Now, it's taking place at the Australian Garden Auditorium, Cranbourne Gardens. Um, entry is at the corner of Botanic Drive and Bellato Road in Cranbourne. And uh, they're even, I believe, going to have a couple of little microbats there for people to have a look at. Uh, now, it runs from 2 o'clock this afternoon through till 3.30. Uh, the cost is members $20, non-members $25, students $10. It does include refreshments. Now, if you'd like to find out if uh, you can still book in for that one, you can phone 8774-2483. That's 8774-2483. Now, uh, coming up, uh, well, this is already... Uh, Started, but uh, it's still running. And this is Cherry Hills Blossom Festival. Uh, now, they mentioned that there's no need to travel all the way to Japan because you can actually go and really appreciate uh, all, the, uh, all the cherry blossoms. Now, it started um, Wednesday. Uh, sorry, today's the 23rd. No, it's not starting till Wednesday of this coming week, the 26th of September, running through till Tuesday, the 2nd of October. Uh, so it's a great way to go and have a look at uh, a full orchard of uh, cherry trees all in blossom. There's going to be, uh, you can pack a picnic or there's, there's a Farmgate cafe there and food trucks. Um, they've got all sorts of cherry beverages, would you believe, cherry ice cream. Uh, there'll be busy bee workshops for children. Um, there'll be face painting and uh, lots of other activities. So uh, that should be um, great fun as well. Now, Cherry Hill um, is in the Yarra Valley. It's at 474 Queens Road in Wandon East. And as I mentioned, next Wednesday, 26th of September to Tuesday, the 2nd of October, 10 a.m. through to 5 p.m. Cost adults $10, children aged between 4 and 13, $5, children under uh, 3, free. And uh, every adult and child entry includes a free bottle of Cherry Hill's delicious Cherish Spritzer. So there you go. Okay. Uh, now, let me see. Coming up next weekend, Open Gardens Victoria have actually got two garden openings for next weekend. Uh, the first one is a surprising tropical garden uh, down in Cheltenham. It's uh, called the Tropical Paradise Garden. Uh, it's inspired... Um, and uh, a really surprising uh, garden created by landscaper and photographer John Couch. 
And uh, from an ordinary suburban block, backing onto a petrol station near a busy intersection, he's created a private tropical oasis inspired by years living in Miami, Florida, and on holidays spent in Bali. Uh, there's uh, uh, Children would love to explore this one too. There's even a rainforest-style chook house constructed from black bamboo, river pebbles, and thatch. And um, the garden was recently featured uh, in uh, the August edition of Australian House and Garden magazine, and there will be photographs by John Couch available to purchase at the Open Garden. So um, the address of this one, Tropical Paradise Garden, is at 3 All Nut, spelt A-L-L-N-U-T-T, All Nut Court in Cheltenham. Uh, open next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, 10 through to 4.30. Entry is $8, children under 18 free, students $5. Now, the other garden that's opening next weekend is um, a tapestry of Australian plants at Bev Fox's Open Garden. Now, um, Bev has spent the last uh, 15 years transforming a traditional suburban lawn and flower garden into a, a gentle garden featuring a natural tapestry of Australian plants woven together by a gardener with skill, discipline and vision. Uh, she uh, employed landscaper Roger Stone to create the new layout for the garden and complete all the hard landscape work, including placing rocks, uh, creating a pond. Um, so plenty of wildlife now to be seen in the garden as well. Um, it's a spacious garden full of lots of interest. Uh, now, Bev will also have refreshments available and native plants for sale at the opening. Now, the address for Bev Fox's garden is 6 Camellia Crescent in the Basin. Uh, again, open next Saturday and Sunday, 10am through to 4.30. Entry $8, children under 18 free, students $5.00. Now, we do have one free double pass for each of those gardens for both the uh, tropical garden and the Australian plant uh, garden. So the first two people who like to phone in on 94190155 can each receive uh, a free double pass to one of those gardens and those will be posted out to the two lucky people. All right, uh, we might move on because my, um, my other announcements are for a little bit further down the track, so we might save those if we have a bit more time later in the show. Um, we will um, also open our lines for talkback. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, you can call us on that same number, 94190155. Or this morning, we have Robin on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Robin... What have you been up to, AB? I haven't seen you for a while. Uh, Yes, well, what have I been up to? I've been, uh, I've started working part-time at Karanga Native Nursery, so that's uh, pretty exciting. So I've been uh, doing that three days a week. Um, And uh, my book, I've just received an advanced copy of my book, so I've been um, running around being excited about that. So that's pretty exciting. That's my book on habitat, which... Kind of, I'll quickly go back to the bat talk. I got an um, email about that last night, so I'm hoping that there's a, uh, a seat available 
um, to go and have a look at those beautiful little micro bats because uh, you don't often get the chance to see them up close. You know, you might see them whizzing through the uh, the uh, car headlights as you as you're driving home at night, and you know they're so fast getting all those little moths and whatnot, but yes. you, you don't often get to see them up close and personal. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that there's going to be a, a seat down there. Mm. Because, I mean, these, these guys, they're so important in our environment, aren't, aren't oh, they? And, gosh, and yes. it's one of those creatures that, you, I mean, you don't get to see, so you don't really clock how important they are, but they're just, I mean, they eat thousands of insects a oh, night. Oh, phenomenal number. So, yeah, yes. I, I think there's, in the uh, wheat-growing regions, the, the microbats diet is 100% um, of the wheat um, weevil. Okay. Yeah, so that, that's all they eat. So it just goes to show what an important tool they can be for um, for pest insects. Oh, yes. Yes, they, I mean, they eat um, mosquitoes and, and lawn grub moths, basically anything that flies, mm. they'll, they'll have a munch on. And, mm. um, yeah, they, I think there's something like uh, 90 species of bat generally, and, and most of those are microbats. So we've got about four flying foxes, which are the, the mega bats, but, yeah, the rest, the mes- rest are microbats. So... Hopefully everyone's got them in their gardens, but uh, you can always put up a box. We've we've recently installed a bat box, but I think because we're in the forest, there's a lot of places You've got them so to hide. So yes. I keep checking, and nothing's moved in yet. It's really okay. quite disheartening. But <laughs> yeah, so I want to go down and have a look at them up close and personal. I've certainly got plenty in my garden because again, I'm surrounded by gum trees. Yeah. and there's lots of habitat for them. And uh, yeah. You know, if I walk the dog outside in the evening, they come whizzing past oh, your head, and beautiful. it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and and if you have them in your house, it's it almost well. In fact, it always is a microbat. You'll never have a megabat in your house. That's right. The microbats tend to get in through the small crevices. I mean, some of them are absolutely tiny. They can be, you oh, know, yes. like, you know, thirty grams or mm. something like that. You know, even less. They're, quite tiny and we've we've got a few living in my cottage i've realized oh really i I thought it was mouse poo that i kept finding everywhere and i was like oh it's really weird and then i realized it was microbat yes right so i wasn't quite as distressed yes (laughs) (laughs) well hopefully i've I've put a stop now to the microbats that used to come down my chimney which uh because it's it's you know, uh, I mean, if you can't get them back out of the house, yeah. they're going to die. Yeah. And and to try and catch them is incredibly hard. And they're also very fragile creatures and, and you really don't want to harm them in any way. So, um, and you shouldn't be handling them anyway because, no, that's of, right. because of all the diseases. I mean, the health regulations basically say don't try not to handle a bat yeah. unless it's absolutely... Absolutely necessary, and, That's and wear right. gloves if you do. But I mean, if they do come in your house, you can just you turn your lights on, open your doors and windows, and they'll soon nick off. Ah, uh, yeah, and you let all the mosquitoes yeah, in at the same time. time. That's right. <laughs> but you can kill them. I've been you there, can done kill that, with, without a guilty conscience. Because <laughs> one, one of the strangest experiences of my life is the farming days many many years back, uh, walking into a shearing shed at night, and I was looking for something or other, and there was just one light in the middle of this big enclosed shed. So I was trying to think, it was about 12 metres by about 50 metres and one light in the middle of it, so largely dark. And, I was, and as, as I was walking around, I was thinking, there's something very strange here. Like, I couldn't, couldn't quite put my finger on what was going on. And I literally stood and looked around and spent two, three minutes trying to figure it out before I realised it was a microbat just doing... Circles, circles around entire you. circles of the shed. Yes. And whistling around the shed, or it was travelling about 150 metres, maybe every couple of seconds. 
it was moving at an amazing speed. Oh, I yes. couldn't quite see it. It was the light wasn't fabulous anyway. And it was just whistling around. But I literally took two to three minutes before I was confident there was a bat. And, mm. and at no point could I figure out exactly where it was. <laughs> I just knew there was a bat in the shed. And, uh, yeah. uh, you saw them all the time in Western Australia. But in the early evening, just as, the, uh, as it was about half dark, I suppose. Yes. I see, uh, I see them in the Dandenongs as well. But. Uh, not quite so common. Mm. 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 Well, I mean, they do. They travel at up to, I think, 50 kilometres an hour, which is incredibly fast. Oh, this, this one seemed to be doing 100. And minuscule. It was so small. Yes. Mm. Yes. No, they're amazing creatures. And, they that, really and that, are. that important point, too, about that natural balance. You know, we, we forget so easily that... There are so many animals that interact in different ways and maintain natural balances with, with things that can get into plague proportions, especially insects and, uh, and all the rest of it. And, mm. uh, you know, it's very easy to lose touch with that balance oh, and create absolutely. all sorts of problems yeah, for ourselves. The food chains and webs, so important. And, I mean, it's easy for people to have a microbat box at home. And, I mean, these days with so many of the larger trees that are being taken down and these microbats, they'll roost in the, you know, underneath the crevices of the bark and, and um, in our um, built-up areas. But, yeah, install a microbat box and uh, hopefully you'll have a few visitors. Yeah. And, and get rid of a mosquito problem at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I've got enough microbats to quite manage that, but... <laughs> Hopefully that balance will um, sort of swing the out. other yeah, way. Because yeah, yeah. you, you've got water on your property, haven't you? Yeah, that's yeah, the problem. So, well, it's kind of the problem and, and the, um, I mean, it's good for the bats. Because, oh, it's great yeah, for the bats. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, yeah, yeah, yeah the mosquitoes, oh, yeah. they're deadly. Never mind. <laughs> okay, Richard, let's get back and talk native orchids because um, you've brought in a stunning few examples of them and... Um, I presume you've got a lot of your members have been madly trying to bring all their uh, native orchids into flower ready for the show. Praying for warm weather more yes, than anything to... else because that's about the only thing that, unless you're lucky enough to have a, a glass house, which the odd few do, but mm. um, and that, that allows them to grow some of the more you know, tropical species. Not that all of those need a glass house, of course, because you get a lot of plants that have come up. There's a little one that I've got here. There's a little white one, which is a Dendrobium falcorostrum, but that grows up in, say, places like the Atherton Tablelands, okay. which makes it perfectly suitable for Melbourne conditions because, you know, you don't get those temperatures mm. when you get up to those higher, higher altitudes. That's it's right. only the lowland tropical plants that, that need that warmth. But as for the ordinary ones, the good old, you know, rock orchids, which looks like being a good year for the, for the dendrobium speciosums. I've got a couple here that, um, you know, they're, they're all starting to kick in. Last year was pretty tame. They seem to, and for people that grow them, and I know there'll be quite a few people listening that have probably got a speciosum, um, they do go through this cycle where they'll flower profusely for a couple of years, and then they just have a dormant period for, for 12 months. You might get one, you know, a plant that's had a dozen spike or, or, or racemes on it might have one, you know, right. and, that, and that's it. And it just seems to be 
a cycle they go through. Mm, so you're okay. not doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with your culture. Um, the little pink rock orchids, which I think a lot of people have, the kingianum type ones, there's so many. There'd be thousands of hybrids of those. They're probably the, the opposite. They tend to flower you know, regularly every, every year. And the interesting thing we get with the hybrids, because they've been hybridised with that many things over, you know, they will spot flower basically any time of the year. You can get them flowering in the middle of winter, which Goodness. is great to have a little collection of things like that. They're so easy to grow and it gives you that colour mm. all year round. Mm. And you can get some plants that will flower three or four times a year. Mm. And they're easy to flower. The species won't because the species are locked into, there's no point in them flowering mm. when the insects that pollinate them, which in most of these cases is native bees for the dendrobiums, aren't around. So depth of winter, the species will not flower. But the hybrid ones, because of the genetic disruption they've gone through, tend to go, oh, I feel like flowering today. And boom, boom you get them coming out all times of the year okay. and uh, and that sort of thing. So that, that's that's a bit of fun. Yes. And, and as I said, the speciosums and the um, kingianum type plants, the little pink rock orchids, they would be the perfect plant for people to start with if they want to grow an epiphytic native orchid. Yes. You know, there, there, there'll be plenty for sale at the show. Good, at I was going to ask At our show you that. next week, there'll, there'll be plenty, plenty, I can guarantee you that. So that won't be a problem. You can start your collection off there. And they don't have to be big pots. You know, the, the little kingianums, I typically like grow them in a three-inch pot. Right. You know, and, and they can be a squat pot, doesn't, the pot's not that important. Because they're an epiphyte, all we're doing is controlling the roots, just keeping them contained. So what's um, the media, Richard? We just use orchid bark. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can use ordinary cymbidium orchid bark will do fine, you know, and you can start mixing in, now the enthusiasts start mixing in absorber stone and all these different things that hold, because these do grow naturally on rocks mm-hmm. in most cases. Okay, there. But you can put in little bits of scoria, um, things like that. That's that's fine. But they will grow perfectly okay in in the orchid medium. Um, you know, just match the coarseness to the size of the pot. The bigger the pot, the coarser the mix usually. Mm-hmm. And that's just and and you'll be repotting them every probably two to three years as a rule. Once the roots start to come out the bottom of the pot, that's usually a a good hint that yep. um, it's time to move things on, or the pot starts to bulge. And, uh, and all the rest. The interesting thing with the Kingianum type group is too, they produce, a lot of them produce little tikis, which are aerial growths at the top of the plant. Okay. In, where the leaf axle, where the flower stems come from, they'll produce a new pseudobulb there. And you basically leave it there for 12 months until the leaves harden and it starts to develop roots and you can just twist them off and pot them up and start a, a fresh collection. They'll be exact clones of the parent. Wow, you know, fantastic! When you get when you get seedlings and all the rest of it, a lot of these things will get pollinated by um, um, what is it? Hoverflies in in Melbourne gardens. Hoverflies, you know, are intrigued by them and they set seed pods. But forget growing it because they're hybrids. You have no idea what you're going to get, and in any case, it's going to take you ages to um, get them to flower, right. you yeah. know, and that sort of thing. So, so don't go down that path. The terrestrials are a whole different ball game, and you know, we can maybe talk about that a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> they're so delicate looking; it's hard to believe that they're easy to grow. You think mm. they'd take some sort of specialised care? 
Well, they've come from a fairly rugged environment when you've got to eke out a living on, on rocks. Yeah. And these dendrobium, the, the speciosums, the, the big ones, and these can go into really deep yellows too in some cases. That's the hilly eyes, the smaller one I've got there, and that's just the speed. They grow on granite outcrops, sandstone outcrops along the Hawkesbury, even up Malakuta, places like that. Fully exposed sun facing the sea in, in some cases. Right. Now, I wouldn't recommend you put your plant in that position because while they look spectacular when they're in flower, the plants that are underneath, the foliage and all the rest of it, are pretty battered, you know, um, yellowing leaves and knocked around and all the rest of it because of that, that environment. So there's a happy medium between what they will tolerate yep. and a nice way to grow them, mm. you know, but they do need that light, mm. you know. They need plenty of light to get reliable flowering. That's the key point. Yeah, yeah. So the, with the smaller ones, um, the rock orchids, you wouldn't don't grow them. Well, like, have you ever grown them in, in a pot of pebbles, for example? Absolutely, you can do that. You can do a lot of people. I've even been experimenting with it lately using bonsai pots, mm-hmm. and that I still I still use the bark, but I mix in some some coarse gravel and things like that with it, or some coarse scoria sometimes. You know, a, a lot of cases keeping to scoria and things is, is to keep the weight down um, when you start getting in. I've seen people have grown stuff in blue metal, you know, mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. that, but it's a terribly heavy, heavy sort of Especially situation. Especially the bigger pots. But, yes. but uh, yeah, yeah, so, so you, can, you can grow them in, in uh, flat bonsai pots because they're epiphytes. The roots will adapt yep. and, and all the rest of it. The only thing that you've just got to be careful of is the roots do have the, the, the velamen layer that's on the outside, those white roots, does tend to stick to, to the pot material now. When it's plastic, it's not so bad, but when it's terracotta or something like that, you know, but, again, you can trim that back when you're repotting them. Yeah, because I was, I was thinking by planting them in bark, you don't create any sort of fungal issues? No, no. Okay. No, not at all. There is a, there is a movement where, where a lot of people are also using um, um, coconut fibre and mm-hmm. things like that. I... I'm not saying don't don't use it. I would always start with bark because it's I think it's foolproof. I have no success with coconut fibre, but I know plenty of people that grow magnificent orchids in coconut fibre. So, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, getting to know people and being part of a society can help you evaluate, you know, what's a good medium and uh, that sort of thing. I'm just looking at the keep it simple process for people that want to start off Mm, and get something Mm. happening. And, And can you have them inside? You can bring them inside when they're flowering, yeah. certainly, to, to display. Um, you wouldn't bring these in because I can guarantee you within a couple of hours the, the, the room is it, yeah. just going to knock. It's like John Quills and things like that. It just knocks, you know, a smallish room. It'll just, you'll be taking it outside. Those that come to the show on, on the weekend will find that out when they go into the main display hall. The, the aroma will just, just... Just keep all the windows and doors that's open. Right. That's right, <laughs> exactly. So, yes, certainly, while they're in flower, you can bring them inside. And, and uh, I mean, they will last for, for quite a few weeks. The flowers will keep... That's one good thing with orchid flowers. Anybody who grows even good old cymbidiums knows how long the flowers last. Because mm, mm, just thinking in a little decorative pot inside. Imagine if you had oh, a lovely. gorgeous little collection of those, just bring them in when they flower. Yes. Very, very easy. And the good thing about having that... that balance you know with, with some of the hybrids is that you're going to have that happening sometimes in the middle of winter not just spring not just summer 
you know, autumn as well. Yeah. You can have a flush of flowers. So there's no reason why you couldn't have something inside virtually every month of the year. Fantastic. Beautiful. Now, Richard, um, at the show, are you also um, having a speaker program this year? Yes, yes. I, I, that details hadn't been finalised because we had to make a few adjustments. But um, if you check when you get into the show, um, I'll see. It could be up on the website. They're just if you're looking for our website, just, just Google Anos Vic. The Vic's the important part because there are a number of Australasian Native Orchid Society various groups. We're the Victorian group. That's the that's the important part. Mm-hmm. But we certainly will have some um, talks on cultivation. Um, I know Helen Richards will certainly be talking on cultivating terrestrial orchids, and there'll be somebody doing a practical display on cultivating epiphytic orchids as well. And uh, so they will certainly be there. Um, and I might say it's it's interesting because a few months ago, anybody that went to the Mount Waverley Community Centre would have thought, "What's going on?" Because it was a bomb site because the whole place has been completely completely um, renovated. Re- renovated. Yes. It was all fenced off and there was panic stations. Is it going to be ready in time? And they assured us it wouldn't and it certainly is. So it's all been, it's all been renovated Fantastic. in time for the show. Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I know, I know other years too, you've, um, you've had, uh, members that have travelled, um, quite some distances from interstate as well to um, come down for the show, haven't you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And one of our members who's one of our main suppliers um, for, for sales plants comes down from Shepparton and, and, and that with his, you know, I, I just imagine because he's had a big, big van and it's typically full of these speciosums and uh, you certainly wouldn't be cracking the heater on for the drive down from mm. Shepparton. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> Your eyes would be running the by the time, you, the time you got there. So, um, so that's, that's wonderful and that's, that's great, you know, having, yep. having, uh, plenty of plants for sale. And I mean, you know, the sky's the limit. I mean, we'll have terrestrials for sale in there as well as the, the epiphytes. The one thing I would say to people, if you're a terrestrial fanatic and there are some beautiful orchids that will be for sale, that'll include spider orchids of, of different types, you must get there early on the Saturday. Right. Because the show opens at nine and closes at four both days. But if you want the uh, terrestrials, yep. Saturday's the day, so be at that front door at 9 There's o'clock. There's going to be a queue up. They, the go, <laughs> they go very, very quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. Richard, okay. you mentioned that the dendrobium is uh, pollinated by native bees. I'm just wondering, because a lot of the orchids are pollinated by native wasps, of course. I'm just wondering, do the wasps and, and, and honeybees, are they attracted to it as well? The, the, the honeybees would be... Coincidental yep. these days because that they weren't originally part of, of the regime, but yep. that can happen, and that can happen with some of the um, uh, terrestrials as well. The one big giveaway is usually scent. Mm. Okay, so we're, we're we're starting to smell that in here with the dendrobes and that. So it's typically native bees. When you get into things like I've got a little Caledonia cardiochyla for the enthusiasts here. It's a little spider orchid. Now that is a wasp pollinated mm. orchid. Mm. It has a scent. But we can't smell it. There's little clubs on the sepal tips, tiny little dots that bacteria mimic a pheromone. Mm-hmm. And the pheromone is of a calling female wasp. And the wasps that these are attracted, the thinines, the females are wingless. And they tend to crawl up a blade of grass or a little twig and sit there emitting this scent to the males. And the males come along and they pick them up and mate with them and carry them to nectar plants. And 
that's what this this orchid's mimicking. Some of them become very specific mimics. It, you know, this this loosely, it's got some visual stimulation, mm, mm. and that little labellum there can hinge up and down. And when the wasp comes into it, he flicks up and down. He tries to lift the labellum away because he thinks it's a female. Come with me, and that's where the pollen transfer takes place, mm. and away they go. And then they get frustrated and 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 nick off and. <laughs> Go and go and find something, something else to do. But that that again, we were talking before about habitat. If you're looking at these plants in the wild, and if you are doing reintroduction, that's where it becomes so important. Mm. Because not only can you, it's not just a matter of putting new plants back in. Are there the nectar plants for the wasps to feed on? The females lay their eggs in the parasites, the um, little grubs, um, beetle larva. Okay, so they need to be they need to be present, and so you've got that complete cycle that's always going on. That if you eliminate one of those things and the wasps move away, these fellows will never get pollinated. Mm. And this particular orchid, like a lot of the spider orchids, they don't tuber multiply. All right, the little green hoods they tuber multiply, so you get great big colonies. A lot of these spider orchids are what we call solitary. Mm. They only so reproduce yep. through seed propagation, yep. Yes, yep. seed recruitment. That's the only way you'll get fresh plants. Yep. And mm. if the pollinators are gone, that's never going to happen. Mm. Yep. So it's managing the whole environment, and uh, that's, again, something that can easily be you know, people can get tripped up by. Yeah, and eliminating uh, pesticides and herbicides. I mean, mm. really, because it's so it's so easy to be out in the garden, see a grub, and you immediately think of the damage that it's going to do or what it, you don't know what it is, so you're immediately suspicious by it. And first sort of thought of call for action is to uh, is to spray a critter, but then it's um, gotten rid of someone else's food supply and thereby goes the degeneration of the food web exactly. or of that particular chain. Exactly. So. And I guess, I guess the other thing too with, with, with our orchids, because we've got such unique terrestrials particularly mm. in Australia, and, I, and again, I, I, I get a lot of people don't really appreciate or understand that there's somewhere between 1,700 to 1,800 species of orchids in Australia. Gosh. And there's a lot in the southern states, which is predominantly where the um, terrestrial, you know, groups come from, from WA and right across the to the east coast. And then you start getting into the into some of the more um, specialised um, epiphytes when you get up into the tropics. But as I said, there's there's a hell of a lot of orchids to discover in Australia, and mm. a lot of them are just so unique with their life cycles mm. and and all the rest of it. That's why we, we've we do a heck of a lot of work on conservation for that very reason, bringing, bringing plants and areas back and uh, getting the funding to, to fence places. That's one big issue, you know, and, and uh, keeping a lot of unnecessary critters out, mm. um, some of the bigger herbivores and things like that. One of the big issues we are facing desperately in, in Victoria is deer in the, in mm. the parks. It's, it's oh, a disaster. Oh, they've got out of control, it's haven't they? It's an absolute disaster. Yeah. And that, that's just got to be addressed. There's no two ways about it, unfortunately, because they're doing untold damage. Well, mm. they, I mean, they've really impacted the helmeted honey eater and leadbeater's possum environment mm. up in Telangi. You know, the yep. yes. ring barking the trees and exactly. um, yeah, crunching all the um, the sedges and whatnot in, in the streams, which is the food source for all these critters as well. So yeah, mm. doing incredible damage and and probably not a um, 
a big enough uh, culling process maybe. You know, it's, uh, there's, there's such um, understandably strict requirements in the culling. Yeah. You, they can only cull, I think it's a couple of deer a night. Um, and, yeah, I mean, really, what's that going to do? It's like me trying to trap one rabbit and, yeah. and exactly. hope that it's going to get rid of the rabbit problem. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Oh, goodness me, there's so much to... The, this, oh, I, I, I get amazed, you know, uh, every time I hear about um, about the life cycle of some of these plants and there's so much that we're so unaware much we don't of. Know. Mm. That's exactly mm. right. It's yeah. just incredible. Yeah. It really is. Ah, on a different note altogether, Jeremy, let's talk um let's talk secret gardens up in the Dandenongs. Let's talk secret gardens. <laughs> um well, uh, it's roaring ahead. Right. Uh, the the um, the program uh, the tickets are selling furiously. And, Excellent. Uh, for anyone who who's uh, who uh, has uh, been involved in in any of the previous um, secret garden um, shows that that this year is a little bit more ambitious and and uh, a few more gardens involved. Mm, um, that's great. The, the theory of it is, is that you buy a ticket for a, a coach and you're taken around to, to gardens and you meet the gardeners in their gardens. And uh, so it's very intimate and you have a chance to actually talk to the people who, so whose project this is. Um, small, it's quite small groups. It's, a, it's, a not, a, it's not a big coach. It's, it's uh, 15, 20 people or so. So it's a small integra- uh, intimate group of, of enthusiasts. So that is the best way to see a garden. Mm. Um, and they've been working pretty well. Um, How many years have you been running this now, Jeremy? Oh, golly. <laughs> we started off in 2000 and the spring of 2009, I remember that. Uh, and they've been running pretty well every every year since. And um, I'm not so heavily involved this year, but uh, my wife's actually doing the donkey work. All the hard work, <laughs> yes. But I have a few <laughs> notes here. And, and um, uh, they're running in October. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the best thing, of course, is simply to Google uh, secret um, gardens of the Dan Nongs, uh, or the Dan Nong Ranges. Um, they're running... Um, um, on the, from the 17th of October through to the 20th of October and again on the 24th of October through to the 27th and so each day there's a different itinerary, a different group of gardens and some of the gardens well um, they're all private gardens number one um, generally quite difficult to see uh, very rarely open and one or two quite well known, on the other hand, Philip Johnson, for instance, and um, just uh, Barker, um, the, uh, and uh, Mernda Heights, for instance, that, that's, that's been open. In fact, Mernda Heights was featured on the ABC a, a few months ago, Norma Berry's Garden, a fabulous old hill station garden from the 1930s, 1950s. I was there a couple of days ago, actually admiring a copse of, of magnolias, uh, and I think their magnolia collection now, they, 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 I guess they'd have about 50, maybe 60 different magnolias stretching wow. over a couple of acres, okay. different varieties. Yes. Walking around with a glass of wine with a <laughs> few people, that was very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Magnolias won't be flowering in October, I might add. But no, no. There, there will be one or two even then, the, the, the late flowering ones, the early summer ones. Um, but uh, then it, it goes through to uh, quite small private gardens and, and um, a garden around an underground house, for instance, in, in Alinda. Um, 
Beachmont, a uh, garden just along from Cloud Hill, which I had a little bit to do with actually, and and uh, uh, and, and that that's that's quite an ambitious garden. That's about oh, twelve, fifteen acres, um, planted originally by a. Um, uh, a nurseryman uh, just using all these favourite plants when he retired about 30 years ago. So all these plants are fairly mature now, and, and but very strong and healthy. Mm. Uh, just need a little bit of uh, structure in the middle of it, and uh, so that's what I was involved with. Pinch the reel from Rousham and pop that into Beechmont. <laughs> <laughs> Rousham is a famous 18th century English uh, garden uh, from uh, well, about 300 years back. Um, and uh, it's working in with, with uh, various other activities as well, uh, popping into one or two of the villages and, uh, and um, one or two of the nurseries. Okay. Uh, um, the, the, um, I'm not too sure which nurseries are involved this year, but uh, uh, um, I, th- I think uh, Roto Glenn and um, Andrew uh, Raper, who, who's uh, done a lot of work with camellias, mm-hmm. and you might have the chance to see his amazing camellia collection that uh, uh, he and Bob Cherry uh, put together, hiking around the wilds of southern China and North Vietnam. Uh, all sorts happening. Yes. Uh, but jump on the, the website, really, that, and, that, and go that through That is it. the easiest way. Most, yeah. Look, the tickets, I understand, are selling furiously, and most of the, and they will definitely sell out, so you can't hang around and, and leave the decision until the last moment. In, in fact, I was told, really, the only two days that uh, where there's a good supply of tickets left are the two Fridays. Okay. Mm, so the, all the other days are, are sort of... Uh, uh, you've got to be really quick. <laughs> yep, right. We should mention the website. It is, uh, now it's a long word, <laughs> Secret Gardens of the Dandenong Ranges, all one word, .com.au. Yep. But, I mean, I'm sure if you just put it into a search engine, it'll yes, all come yeah, and up. Then, and yep, it's all pretty yep, straightforward. Yep. And, and the, one, the beauty of it is because um, you're visiting different properties on different days, you can go to more than one. You, and It's a wonderful way to cover quite a lot of these different hidden gardens. There's three or four um, gardens, uh, uh, stops on that each day. Okay. Yep. Fantastic. Uh, but each day is different, yes. and you need to go through the entire catalogue and figure it out. <laughs> Cull Raven is another one. It just occurred to me that that's a, that's a fabulous garden. Uh, just a, again, just along our ridge. Yep. Oh, there are so many amazing gardens in the Dandenongs. Uh, most probably twenty or so uh, within um, you know within a two minute drive of us. Uh, but Cull Raven, um, that's the um, Hugh Taylor's uh, big project, mm-hmm. Hugh and Liz Taylor. Um, very interesting bloke. He's, he's picked up the, the, the uh, baton from um, um, uh, Fred Hollows. Oh, right. And uh, so he travels around the world working with um, 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 doing eye surgery. Uh, professor of ophthalmology. Okay. Uh, but this is his, actually his family's um, weekender. Right. Uh, but several acres and very overgrown when they began work on it a few years ago. I remember walking into it and thinking, oh, golly, this is about six months' worth of chainsaw work. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and they actually did, dare I say, have to remove about 90% of the trees. Oh. But, uh, and, but then they took it back to something which is just absolutely extraordinary. They're in amongst all the wreckage were 
a few amazing things. Edna Walling and Ella Stones were both involved in the original okay. garden 50, 60 years ago. Right. Mm, so there's, Wonderful. there's treasures. There's all sorts oh, of amazing I things. I can imagine. Yeah, worthwhile just spending a... Half an hour waiting through the catalogue. Yes, fantastic. And we should mention too, Jeremy, that um, you also get uh, a variety of food and wine. Oh, yes. That's definitely <laughs> oh, part oh, of oh, it. I mean, this is five-star treatment. For, there's, there's a few pennies involved, I'm, I, I will admit, but uh, but the, the food and wine is part of it, and there's a lot of food and wine <laughs> on serious food and, and wine. And, and a lot of that food mm, and wine comes yes, from local producers too. Absolutely. Yes. yes. A gastronomic tour with gardens yes, involved. Exactly. Absolutely. Rather. Yes, Definitely. Okay, so uh, do uh, do jump on the website, have a look at the itineraries, and uh, as Jeremy said, don't delay to book because um, the places uh, that they, are left they, are running out. Yeah, they will sell out. They will uh, well before the events. Yeah, sure, fantastic. Okay, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9:15, our usual time slot. If you'd like to jump on the phones and Give us a call this morning if you have a gardening question. We'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155 to speak to AB, Jeremy or Richard. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Robin on the outside line, 94198377. Let's start with some of the plants. Oh, goody. Goody, good. <laughs> um, I brought in a few yellows today, but um, if you're in the market for a sort of scrambling ground cover slash shrub, uh, get your pen ready because this is um, a little beauty. I was introduced to herbertias. My local herbertia is herbertia scandens, which, yes. as you know, is a nice uh, sort of scrambling, rambling vine uh, with bright green flowers, and um, that was my whole herbertia world. And uh, then I started working at Karanga and realised, oh my goodness, there's 150 species of herbertias ranging from absolute prostrate ground covers to trees. So that sort of um, blew my mind and got me thinking, oh, might be another book in the, uh, <laughs> in the making, a herbertia book, if there isn't one already, which I haven't come across. Um, the plant that I've brought in with me is uh, Himbertia in Hibertia impetrifolia, um, which is the, oh, now I'm going to have a blank, where are we? Uh, this um, sc- scrambling guinea flower. And um, gets to about one, can reach up to three metres. I haven't seen it at three metres. Um, we do have it in, in the uh, garden in various spots at Karanga. So I'm seeing it now. It's an absolute, the masses of um, the yellow buttercup style flower. Um, these, I mean, Fantastic for um, sunny or shady positions um, where, where, where we've got them growing, sun for part of the day, some are under shrubs, um, some are under eucalypts. Um, so, I mean, the sub, sub-story um, plants, so they're terrific in, in those sort of environments. Um, good for coastal. And, um, yeah, just adaptable to various sort of soils. Um, They've sort of come from, you know, they've just pop into southeast Queensland and then through the coast, New South Wales, Vic and, and Taz and um, also on Kangaroo Island. Um, but, yeah, very adaptable plant. Um, I've also, so there's um, a photo of it in the pot on the website. 
and on the on the 3CR gardening show website and then there's also a few photos of it in situ as well so people can get a sort of understanding of what it looks like it it'll scramble over um other shrubs as well so um there's one there's a photo there of it scrambling through a uh, prostanthra which is just coming into bloom so it's the beautiful um yellow of the hibertia um coupled with the lovely purple of the prostanthra mm. flower so uh yeah it's um Terrific little plant, um, responds well to a bit of a tip prune after flowering and um, can is, is fine with sort of light, lighter frosts. Okay. But, uh, yeah, pretty hardy. And then um, there's uh, also one, I put a photo of it on um, in situ on the website, which is Hibertia aspera, and that's more of a shrub that gets to about one and a half um, in height and width. And again, just a lovely dense shrub which would make a gorgeous hedge. Um, and again, covered in an absolute mass of yellow flowers at the moment. So, um, I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of herbertias. I've also come to know, um, pedunculata, which is a very prostrate. Um, one with real wiry stems, so it's you know it's, it's got a bit of sort of form to it as it scrambles through the garden. But uh, yeah, I think the herbertias they're they're really doing it for do me. Do they do they all tend to have uh, yellow flowers? They do, and they're all they're called the guinea flowers, right? And yeah, they're, they're all all well so far. I'm sure Gwen or Roger might uh, correct me here, but as far as I know, they all seem to have that bright, uh, bright yellow really buttercup bright. flower yes. of various sizes. Yep. So, okay. Uh, yeah, and and this this particular one has got um, very sort of um, small, um, fairly tough little deep green leaves, um, but uh, yeah, and and the flowers held on the end of the stalk, so it's yeah, just a massive massive yellow. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. And another one. Oh, okay. Let's go to another one. Um, so this is a conostylus. And the conostyluses are in the uh, hemorrhoidaceae family, so the kangaroo poor family. So they can be treated um, in a similar manner, I suppose, to the smaller growing um, kangaroo paws, which are a little bit fussier than the um, flavidus, which yes, are the, the taller the growing ones. ones. Yeah, so um, these conostylus are absolutely beautiful rockery plants or container plants. Um, they, so they're... Um, they're a clumping type of perennial, and this particular one that I've got with me, the species is Setigera, um, or Setigera, not sure how you say that, lemon lights. Um, but they're, um, yeah, so they, their leaves are just, um, it's, they almost form a sort of a, a, a rounded shrub, small shrub in a way. Um, but yeah, quite, um, just uh, almost spiky leaves, uh, a bit hirsute, a bit hairy. And um, this particular conosylus has got uh, yellow sort of, um, I don't know, knobbly flowers, I suppose you'd call it, um, which is similar to, to the, rest of the, um, the rest of the genus. And um, no, I'm just trying to think how many... Um, how many have we got in this particular? Oh, four, 40 species, but not okay. not, not heaps are cultivated. Yes. Um, there's the um, Juncea, which is cultivated. The Candicans, which has got the uh, grey foliage, and that that's quite a popular one, grey foliage with the... Um, the um, flowers held well above the foliage whereas the um, biliana um, it's quite a, a compact shrub and the yellow sort of 
or bright yellow trumpet flowers are held within the foliage, so right. in the bright green foliage. So, yep. but uh, again, a beautiful uh, genus. They like uh, well-drained conditions. They like full sun. Um, so if you give them that, whether it's in natural well-drained soil or in rockeries, um, absolutely beautiful, beautiful plant. So, mm. um, yeah, the, the conistylus. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Where, do, where, where do those ones originate? Okay. WA. Yeah. Of course. In yeah. fact, I they think look very familiar. I know. Everything comes back to WA. <laughs> it's pretty much all the ones I've completely, completely dominated the landscape where we were farming. And, yes, and they were right. flowering at exactly the same time as the Leshenoltia. Oh, I, lovely. I came there a few, few weeks ago and, and uh, I was attending a workshop on Nungam burning in the Jarrah forests. And, and the, the workshop began with this lovely story of, of the. Um, of um, one day the the sky began falling down and uh, um, the the great grey kangaroo lay on his back and kicked the sky back up again but didn't manage to get it all back. The little bits of the sky fell down and you see that every spring and the Leshenaltia flowers. And and anyone who's seen Leshenaltia in the wild will know that the blue of the flower, it varies a little bit and it varies to... The sky, the Asia drew, drew overhead to the Asia on the horizon, and it's exactly that spectrum. It's right. an extraordinary plant, and, always, and flowering with so many yellows. Yes. And the Beautiful combinations. And mm. just yeah. absolutely massed everywhere. Fantastic. Okay, we'd better get to some of our callers. First up, we have Pippa in Sydenham. Good morning, Pippa. Oh, good morning. You realise you've made it like. The lolly shop there's <laughs> things to go to and choose. You make life awkward. <laughs> We've listed them all down. Richard, uh, a question to you: Have you heard of the one of the original Cymbidium orchids called the uh, Conquistador? No, I that... was given that by a wonderful gentleman who's now passed, okay. but uh, an absolutely wonderful human being he um he was in the royal australian navy and he made all of the cakes you know the large cakes they had for their celebrations and uh, on giving me one for my birthday he also gave me a cymbidium orchid and he said now you must look after this because this is one of the original from the genus and it's called conquistador and it had an aluminium tab in it with the marking Conquistador. Now, I've had that for over 40 years uh, in, in honour of his memory. And every time, maybe three times, I have um, had to replant because of the growth of the bulb. But um, Absolutely. I have nurtured it continually uh, in, in his memory. They're, um, they're, of course, an exotic orchid. The, 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 that particular, we do have cymbidiums native to Australia, but the ones you're talking about, um, it will be, will be a hybrid. Um, the Grandiflora, which is a beautiful green cymbidium, is, is one of the main species. But with your repotting of it, look, the good thing you've got going for you is they are such a tough orchid. So don't be afraid to repot it whenever you think it needs it, and even to the point of dividing it into a couple of pots. 
and that always gives you some ammunition in case you do have a problem with one. Um, having two or three pots of it, you can you can keep it growing. But if it if it's a fairly old um, old hybrid like that, I would suspect it's also pretty vigorous too, and fills the pot up fairly quickly after you repot it again. Is that the yes. case? Yeah. Well, when I moved back from Sydney, uh, he also gave me the beautiful Sydney rock oyster, uh, mm. rock lily. Yep. Uh, the yep. One, it's actually at my front door in flower at the moment, and that's, uh, they're only given to wonderful people. Mm. But I must tell you, that's in about, the, do you remember the very large old ceramic um, long cookers that you used to have? And I had one that's slightly cracked, so I placed some Sydney uh, sandstone slabs in it, and that's what it's now flowering in. Mm, mm. So it, it absolutely loves it. It's near my fish pond, so maybe the hoverflies have yep. really done their dash this year because the whole thing's in flower. But um, so so your orchid. Uh, exhibition is next week, is that right? Next Saturday and Sunday at Mount Waverley oh. Community Centre. That's well, it. A wealth of knowledge again. Good on you. And as I said, just, just repot that cymbidium whenever you think it needs it and don't be afraid. You won't damage it in any way. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye. Ah, next up we have Anne in Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Oh, good morning, everybody. Um, I found up about daffodils a couple of weeks ago and I learned some things, but I forgot a couple of things to ask. Um, I've got uh, some daffodils, they're in pots and they're about a metre high and they're very vigorous. I want to know, do I separate the bulbs when I transplant them into bigger pots and do I cut, when do I cut back the growth? We're all looking at Jeremy. Off you go. Well, certainly you wouldn't uh, do anything with them right now. If, if they're growing in a pot, uh, you'd let them uh, let the uh, foliage uh, die down. So uh, don't touch them for uh, a couple of months or so, and then, and then you then yes, I'd separate them. And uh, they, they have to be in a pot, uh, do they? They, they? They can't be in the ground. Uh, they're going to be in a very large pot. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, in that case, you just need to separate them and, and repot them uh, each uh, autumn um, if, if, if you have to grow them in a pot. Uh, the, of course, you know, conventionally you could grow them, let them naturalise in the ground. But uh, yeah. certainly don't work on them now. They, they, they're actively, uh, uh, well, must probably flowering, and, and uh, after they finish flowering, they, they, they uh, need... Uh, need to be left alone for uh, about six, eight weeks um, and so they mature, the, uh, so they produce, um, uh, they have the ability to flower again next year, but they, they need to be left alone for that period at least. All but they right. work on them, at when, when the foliage goes down, then, then, you, then you can do what you like with them. Oh, <laughs> Separate okay, them into then. different pots or put them in the ground. Thank you very much. Okay, okay. bye. Bye. The only thing I know about daffodils is that the rabbits annoyingly don't eat them, <laughs> which I find absolutely ridiculous considering they're probably native to their environment anyway, to the rabbit's natural environment anyway. But the, no, of course, they want all my lovely native plants and they leave the 
Daffodils, daffodils alone, <laughs> which I don't. I think Ray might have planted them many, many moons ago because I certainly didn't. But yeah, they're kind popping of, up and the snow bells uh, are popping up. And it's, it's, uh, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Though the rabbits know. Uh, uh, sorry, the daffodils know about rabbits. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. no, I know. It's just, it's really frustrating though, and I thought maybe it's the, the strappy foliage that they ignore, but no, they don't touch the flowers. Or, no, no, no one. The wallaby doesn't eat them. It's yeah. Okay. Yeah, they all want my gardenias and corias and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we are uh, running through until 9.15 this morning. We've got uh, A.B. Bishop, Jeremy Francis and Richard Austin in the studio this morning. If you'd like to give us a call, uh, the number 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Robin on the outside line, 94198377. Jeremy, you brought in a couple of things too, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, Let's have a chat about those. Yep. Besides the books, we mean, Jeremy. We're <laughs> uh, actually talking about the plants, I think. We have uh, several epimediums ah. uh, from antique perennials. Right. Uh, these uh, very useful woodland plants for dry shade. Um, Extremely good foliage and lovely flowers at this time of the year. And um, the antique perennial nursery has managed to put together a collection of over a hundred of them. Gosh. So many, many species. So in the old days, say, say 15 years ago, there were about five or six, and one or two that you saw around the bit. Um, uh, Versicolor sulfurium, which we, we have heaps of. Quite a good thing, mind you, but some of the new ones are just extraordinary. And uh, Epimedium sempervirens, um, great masses of, uh, well, uh, uh, well, a fairly substantial uh, uh, white flowers, nodding flowers. And the, the uh, leaves are generally heart shaped, and this one has mottled leaves. The, the foliage is quite extraordinary uh, with many of these. Now, some, most of them are evergreen, some of them are deciduous. But uh, it's actually worthwhile with the evergreen varieties to snip the foliage back right at the end of winter because the new foliage coming up is just so dramatic and these things are so tough that they, they don't mind having the, 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 the old foliage removed. And so what you have is the um, flowers coming up and the new foliage coming up underneath the flowers. And, some t- and quite often the effect of the two together is just extraordinary. Mm. They look so difficult to grow. In fact, they're dead easy. As they're always so delicate looking. Yep. <laughs> they look like <laughs> they need to be sort of uh, mollycoddled. Yes, at uh, Epimedium. Um, Stellulatum is, a, is a, a very much in that mould. Tiny, tiny flowers, but great masses of tiny white flowers. And again, mottled heart-shaped leaves. Mm, absolutely um, beautiful. And a, and a couple of other plants uh, that uh, Antique are also doing. So you'll see them around in various nurseries. Uh, we, we, we keep a good range at Cloud Hill with the Diggers Nursery. But Omphaloides lilac mist, um, the Omphaloides, there's a cherry ingram, which, uh, thinking of Leshenaltia uh, uh, biloba, uh, is, is, that, that's, that's a really rare colour in, in any flower, Asia blue. But um, cherry ingram, Omphaloides cherry ingram is also sky blue. blue. Okay. Um, but there's another one, lilac mist. Now, both of these are exceptionally good woodland plants, quite, quite useful foliage, and, they're, and tolerating dry shade. Um, and, and it's always a difficult spot for many people, old gardens, lots of trees, and 
nothing will grow. Mm. Um, both the epimediums and the omphaloides uh, are worthwhile trying. Finally, uh, Potophyllum spotty dotty. <laughs> 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 uh, this is, this is, uh, 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 uh wish people would think about naming plants. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I can see why it's been called Spotty Dotty, but the pot of films are, 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 again, woodland plants, but these ones do need um, moist, um, reasonably fertile soil. I find pot of film Spotty Dotty actually grows beautifully in a pot. Okay. Um, and I, I tend to grow it in a big container in bright shade. So no direct sunlight whatsoever, but um, but lots of indirect light. Mm-hmm. It it uh, sends up these uh, very substantial leaves. This one is just popping out. It's been winter dormant. It's it's just sending up fresh foliage. Um, the, the the leaves are mottled and they eventually become spotty with mahogany brown, uh, overlaying the the basic green, and then it. Um, Growing in a pot and, and, and a raised pot is actually quite good because then it flowers in midsummer with these incredible flowers which don't quite come up above the leaves. So they oh, sort okay. of look slightly below the mm-hmm. leaves, but oh, very, it's a kind of a maroon red, um, and, um, uh, but very dramatic and, and unusual, and you don't notice them unless you have this plant in a raised pot. We have ours in right beside one of our little brick pavilions in a spot where uh, uh, people can sit and then they look across and there are the flowers sort of sitting there and they flower for quite a long time. The, 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 now, the pot of films, there's some very choice plants amongst that group. Um, most of them are quite tricky to grow. For some reason or other, this is a, a hybrid, and, 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 and as, as is the case with some of the hybrids, it is... Uh, extremely robust. It's the easiest of all the pot of films um, and worthwhile getting hold of. It's a little bit hard to get hold of in the first place. It, it, it builds up slowly and it's still very new to commerce in okay. Australia. Right. So um, uh, there's a few plants propagated each year. If you see one, grab one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as I said, uh, we, we have had so much success growing in a pot. I think most probably start off in the, with it in a pot. So right. what you're saying but you a good-sized pot, uh, at least, uh, uh, well, about 300 um, in diameter, internal diameter at least. Okay. Yeah, it's quite a substantial plant. Right. So, I mean, would the label features the leaf. So, would you say that the uh, leaf? Yeah, is the, the leaf. Main the leaf. Yeah, the leaf is definitely the foliage is definitely the main feature. It forms a mound of foliage rising up about um, 600 millimetres high, about two feet high, um, and it's, it's 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 quite a dramatic. We grow it in amongst hostas. Yep. And it kind of outshines most of our hostas. Okay. Well, there all. you go. <laughs> and so it needs those conditions. Yep. Uh, the same conditions as you grow a hosta. If you grow it in a pot, you can call it potty spotty dotty. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I would. There's, 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 surely there's a punishment for, for these moments. <laughs> uh, do snails worry it a lot? No. Uh, I've not seen snails touch it. Okay. That's mm. interesting. We have to watch snails for everything else they're growing well, thereabouts, but no, not the pot of Okay, excellent. Good. 
All right. Uh, we are running through until 9.15, so if you do want to uh, ask a gardening question, particularly if you want to talk about um, native orchid propagation or um, just uh, to get your hands on some, do give us a call. The number is 94190155 or to speak to Robin on the outside line, 94198377. Now, you've got a couple more there too, AB, that we I, haven't mentioned. I do, and I'll just quickly, I noticed that Sue Stevens rang in to say that there's one orange flowering herbertia, which is Stellaris, although she says there may be more. But, uh, yes, there I you go. had a quick Google, and it was a lovely orangey uh, gold. So, yes, there, there is one. Um, yes, so another plant which might be familiar to you, Jeremy, given that uh, it comes from WA. So oh, this yes. Is, this is the very familiar colours. This is the uh, Corizema cordatum, and uh, Corizema are a, um, a genus of 18 species, with 17 of them coming from WA. So um, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Yet another stunning plant. This particular one um, is—it's a shrub, but it also can be a bit of a sort of scrambler through other plants. So. Uh, uh, again, where we have it at work, it is there's one that's a, a standalone plant and one that is scrambling through the shrubs. Um, gets to about one and a half, maybe two metres tall, depending on the conditions. Um, and it, it does um, probably do better in those um, sort of dappled shade conditions. And it uh, doesn't, doesn't like to dry out at all. Um, and so it likes a bit of... Um, Moisture during the hot days and, um, yeah, a, a mulch around the soil. This particular one is um, one that a lot of people will be familiar with, which is the, uh, yeah, the heart-leafed um, flame pea. So it's got those uh, bright orange and pink um, pea flowers. Um, which really catches your eye, we, you know, when uh, down at um, any of the gardens, I know in Maranoa Gardens they've got an incredible specimen in there, um, but they really shine up beautifully against the, um, the uh, yeah, I suppose mid-green uh, cordate leaves. Uh, so, yeah, lovely, lovely shrub um, for sort of, yeah, semi, semi-shaded conditions um, and one that's certainly a bit of... Um, a bit of eye-catching. Mm. Well, it's got a fairly open growth habit, so I can see how it would scramble up quite happily. It, yeah, it has. It's scrambled through um, a group of banksias, actually. And okay. So, yeah, it looks it looks quite intriguing against the um, with all the um, the banksia flowers, right? Dead, dead and alive. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a it's a gorgeous plant. Have, have you seen it out in the wild and way over west? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I might add that the, the, the Western Australia is the one place in Australia that's had a lot of rain this winter. Yes. And, and the, the wildflower season right now would be amazing. And if anyone would like to, I'd, 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 I'd jump on an aircraft and fly over and have a look right now. <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's a, you know, good through for another few weeks and, and that way you avoid all the Western Australians that are coming here and, and tearing Collingwood apart. <laughs> Yes, a good time to escape. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And uh, the other plant? Oh, my thrypt. My thrypt, I mean. So this is just a um, a very... 
general goodie in the garden, which is uh, um, thryptamine um, saxicola FC pain, which um, a lot of people would know, but just a gorgeous, uh, you know, a hedging plant or even a, a rockery type plant gets to around a metre, uh, maybe a smidge taller. Um, and same width, quite, um, you know, arching um, thin branches that are, um, yeah, covered in tiny little pink flowers uh, that are quite sweetly scented. So it uh, certainly attracts the, um, the pollinators, the, uh, the ones that like the nectar. And, uh, yeah, lovely cut flower plant, suitable for a range of conditions, and um, at the moment, it's absolutely a mass of flowers. So, again, it's one of those plants that it's just a, a lovely garden plant for most of the year that's, you know, not particularly attractive but not unattractive. But then at this time of year and through into summer, it actually becomes a mass of flowers. So, uh, um, and in the, in the Mertaceae family, so that's, you know, with the Callistamins, Eucalypts, Melaleucas and Kunzia. So they don't mind um, damp conditions at all. Okay. So, yeah, oh, that's that's, it's, it's a really handy plant as a, you know, could be um, a, a low growing um, hedge or something like that. But mm. uh, yeah, quite, quite dense in habit. So mm. good for the little critters to be jumping around in. And um, yeah, lo- lovely little plant. Great. Jeremy, I bet you're already starting to plan um, Christmas holiday activities for the garden. You wondered what I was going to say then, didn't you? Yeah, more work I've got to do. What misdeeds I've been involved with now. Yeah, we're sort of about three quarters of the way through uh, organising our twilight events, and um, so Shakespeare uh, yeah, again. Shakespeare, much ado. Uh, ah, last much weekend ado. in 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 Good. December. Yep. And we we have uh, the the Melba Opera Trust coming and putting on a recital on Australia Day on, oh, on that nice. evening on the twenty nice. sixth, and. Um, and then we have the Evergreen Ensemble and Latitude 37 coming during February. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they're, they're both, um, both those groups are splinter groups of the Pinchcut Opera mob. Yes. <laughs> so they're yes. all serious musicians oh, yes. doing period instruments and doing, and, and, and specialising in music of, well, two, three hundred years ago generally. Mm. Um, so th- those, and, and, Hmm. <laughs> if all goes well, we're hoping to have Riley Lee as well uh, with a shakuhachi oh, uh, in, in early March. So I'm, I'm, he's in New York at the moment. I'm, I'm, we're just trying to <laughs> figure out possibilities. So yes. we'll see how we go. But it should be a pretty full uh, summer. Fantastic. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to a, a, a good proper summer and, and nice gentle conditions <laughs> and the garden looking well, the summer perennials doing the right thing by us. Yes, absolutely. I might say we're absolutely flat out on those right now. We're pulling all those borders apart and, and uh, taking advantage of these dry conditions. So anyone who's working with uh, summer flowering perennials, that's what you should be doing right now, uh, dividing clumps and, and rearranging and sorting things out. The conditions are absolutely spot on. We're doing it flat out all last week. We'll have this week, and then we'll see what the weather gods do after that. Mm. 
And and how did the hedges? Uh, you gave them a very hard cutback. Um, we're time. working. Yeah, we we've actually got to the point where we're renovating one of our hornbeam hedges, chopping it right back hard, and we've got another season to go. That, that's an interesting thing, actually. We weren't too sure exactly what was going to happen, but we cut a uh, hornbeam hedge the top three metres off uh, <laughs> last winter. And the um, the buds burst out of the old bark and the trunks of these trees um, so fast uh, this this past spring that they, they, the 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 buds were exploding away and are growing much faster than the existing buds on oh. the periphery on the the faces of the hedges. Oh, okay, it's really quite extraordinary. It's, it's quite exciting to see. So we've got lots of growth at the top to to make up for the. Missing three metres. <laughs> because when you think about it, of course, the trees are just intent on uh, getting some foliage up and protecting to keep the sun off their bark. Yes, right. The uh, hornbeam are a bit like beech. They have thin bark and, and the, the sun can damage the bark. And I must admit, I was wondering whether we'd have to throw shade cloth over these hedges. Mm. No, 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 the trees sorted it out for themselves very quickly. <laughs> it knew what it had yeah, to do. <laughs> and we, we took back uh, the, uh, the external face of each hedge. So we're doing this. This is a three-year program. Top, top off one winter, one side off the following winter, and the final side off the third winter. Right. And then, we're, then we'll get the hedges back to the same dimensions they were about 20 years ago. Right. And then, 20 years' time, someone else... You'll have to do the whole thing again. (laughs) Not me. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, there are hornbeam hedges in gardens in Europe that are 300 years old. And no doubt this is... uh, They've been kept to particular dimensions for a long time. Hidkit in Gloucestershire has fabulous hornbeam hedges... uh, a, a, a very elaborate arrangement of hornbeam hedges at the end of their main axis. So the, it's a famous tree for hedging purposes uh, used throughout Europe for a long time. Oh, yes. And uh, and our beach, well, um, um, well, most of our work on our beach is in summer. But uh, this is renova- This is uh, renovation work rather than ordinary maintenance work. Yes, yes, mm. yes. Wow. Yeah, so it's all, it's all fun. We're figuring it out as we go. We we, we you know, try these things, <laughs> heart in mouth. Oh yes. Yeah, the plants generally know what's right. <laughs> they, they, they respond. They do the right thing by us. Yes. Now I, I wondered how um, you know the hedge would would uh, react because that was a pretty heavy oh, lot yeah. you did. Oh yeah. Yes. Treat him with a chainsaw. Yes. Bang. Exactly. And <laughs> I wouldn't hel- recommend I, that for everything. Yeah. I, I, I must say that the hedge is meant to be about two meters by about uh, two thirds of a meter in, in width, nice right. and slim. And it was more like five. It's getting up towards six meters in places, yes. and that was way. That is becoming a health and safety issue as far as the uh, whoever is on the end of the uh, uh, the head shears right. uh, at the top of the tripod ladder. And, yep, and yep. We, we, you know, we, we, it's that's that's how we do it from the top of the tripod ladder. And, yeah, and yeah. So yeah, there are certain there's a point at which uh, you just can't teeter anymore <laughs> on top of this thing. <laughs> So that, well, well, you're also <coughs> restoring um, a different perspective in the garden, aren't you? Really? By, by, yeah, by yeah, yeah. I mean, bringing I mean, it down I mean, a bit? Absolutely, absolutely. It brings it in proportion. And, yeah. And, was it, and, and was and it starting and, to I mean, shade the, the hedges, more? Yeah, well, but, but, you know, the, the, over 25 years, 
well, you've got to let a hedge grow a little bit each year. You cannot take it back to the same spot, otherwise, uh, 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 same dimensions, so otherwise you're just uh, damaging the plant. You've got to let it grow a few centimetres each year, and after 20, 25 years, that adds up. Yes, and so exactly. the hedges were, they were about four metres across and about uh, and approaching six metres high. Whoa. And that, that was using up a lot of space. It was. And, uh, and also way out of proportion. Yeah. So the time came for renovation, so out with the chainsaw. But spreading the work over three years, uh, that I, I, possibly I could have done it all, the, the, the two sides this year. I, I suspect it would have been okay, but, um, um, well, out of respect for the hornbeam, mm. <laughs> three years. Yeah, no, that's mm. fair enough. So it's still going to look odd for another 12 months. Right. And then another 12 months after that, they're back to where they were. So yeah. it's a really a four-year program. Yes, and yes. obviously it's a plant that responds to pruning and you don't have that yeah. bare woody growth inside. That's No, no, it, 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 the, the, the plants had a very solid framework, but there, were, there was not much foliage within that framework. You you can walk through and actually see the work right now. It's Mm. it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And and as I'm taking, I had two groups yesterday and we've stopped and had a look at the hedge. If you, you know, (laughs) it looks so odd that you really have to talk about it. But curiously, one of the groups yesterday uh, was a coach group from England. They they were were perfectly familiar with this sort of thing. It's just in Australia we're not so accustomed to renovating hedges. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but as you say, seeing it in that form, is so useful to gardeners, isn't it? Rather than just always seeing everything finished, like visiting a you, you know, um, herbaceous perennial beds in the middle of winter, where you can see what's what, how it's actually being planted out, and the structure of it, and the spacing between plants is just so beneficial. Mm. If if that's the kind of thing that you want to create yourself, yeah, exactly. Mm. But it also proves that that um, gardens are not static. Creatures. That's no, a work in progress. It is constantly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, Richard, tell us a little bit more. I, I've, you've mentioned it briefly in passing, and I know that Anos are really heavily committed to trying to do a lot of restoration out in the wild. Um, do you have a, a, a specialised group that that do this or? Oh, absolutely, Pam. I mean, yeah, for anybody who who wanted to join too. I mean, the the good thing I. Actually, I do think we are putting our fees up from eighteen to twenty dollars a year. Oh, that's oh, it. oh shame! <laughs> but um, and and uh, and that, but that that um, is is just to bring everything into line, of course. Of course. But, but we have we have an epiphyte study group which is dedicated to they they meet every month um, bar January, um, so that they're dedicated to looking at epiphytes, how people grow them, go to different members' houses and greenhouses and, and have a look at that. Then we have the terrestrial group, and um, we're the nuts that go out crawling around in the bush amongst the <laughs> herbertias and the, um, you know, different yes. different things that are out there and um, doing a lot of uh, photography and all the rest of it. So, so it's, a, it's a great in for people that just like to discover the, the orchids out in the wild mm. and also the photographers as well yes. and I mean this can be anywhere from you know a simple trip down to Langwarren to um, going right up to um, well Golmerang and places like that um, which is you know a five hour drive um, and those sorts of things <clears throat> then we have the conservation group and uh, they are regularly doing some of, some of their work actually might, they might be away for a week 
are mostly done during the week, and, and it's mostly, of course, retired members that are involved in those groups. So they'll be out um, where plants have been grown in the Botanic Gardens nursery as reintroduction plants. They will have, you know, assessed an area, and then those plants will all be taken up to that particular area or a number of areas over a week. They'll move from one site to another and reintroduced. And if necessary, caging done and all the rest of it. Um, a lot of the funding that we, we, we get from the government through the government, I should say, um, that goes to, in some cases, things like fencing and weed control, which is done commercially for practical reasons these days, and, and all the rest of it. So we've got that aspect where there's so many different, you know, paths you can follow being involved with the, with the society in mm. that respect. And I think that's what made us really strong because we're not, we're not um, bound on one thing. Probably another thing that saves us, we're a non-judging society. We don't have any plant judging like that. <laughs> that's we, great. I'm pleased to hear that. We, we do give out cultural certificates, which are basically just acknowledging that that's a well-grown plant. Okay. But we, we, don't ha- we don't get involved with any of the judging yes. as, as, as in the normal judging. So there's judging no cutthroat situations. No, no. <laughs> so we don't have to. We don't. So people will see when they go to the show next weekend, they'll see awards that have been given, which is you know cultural awards we also will have a photography display there and we also have awards for the for um the best photograph each Mm. year that's been taken out in the wild that's the only thing we stipulate that it must be taken in the wild for the poor people that crawl around on their hands Mm. and knees and Mm. get bitten by balance and and all those sorts of and all those sorts of things so um yeah yeah there's, there's there's plenty going on and as i said you know you can be in all corners of Victoria, essentially. Mm. Do you work in conjunction with any other conservation groups? Mainly with with um, Delp. Okay. Is, yep. is is where most of the that most of that Department work of Environment. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Mainly because in a lot of cases they they might be the only people that that that, that have access to to certain areas um, as far as as far as getting through. Um, we do support a number of other groups that are doing things on their own back, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give them support and encouragement um, on our behalf and that sort of thing. Um, and, of course, there's the nursery down in Cranbourne now, which Nuska Reader runs. Um, which and that's we, where a lot of your propagating takes place, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 exactly. We made a substantial donation to, to getting that place up and running because that was closed. It was up in Horsham originally and the government in their wisdom closed it and fortunately down at Cranbourne they had a building they could offer but of course it had to be fully equipped with um, laminar flow cabinets and all the the paraphernalia that goes with it Mm. so that was where um, a lot of people came to the fore and, and got all that underway and uh, now you know the, the, the orchids can be propagated because it's so complicated I guess that's one of the things that mightn't be appreciated with, with these terrestrials First of all, to germinate the seed, you have to extract the mycorrhiza fungi that is involved in germinating the seed. And quite often it's only one fungi mm. species mm. per orchid species. Mm. Wow. And you've got to culture these as well. And so what they might do is go out in the field and collect um, little samples just down from the collar here underground. So they won't damage the plant as far as, you know, destroying it, but they'll just take a thin slice. And that will have enough fungi in it when it's teased out under a microscope that it can be cultured Good. and then that can be then used with the seed from that particular orchid 
to germinate because the orchid seed won't, unlike, you know, if you've got some parsley seed at home or tomato seeds, you can throw them in some seed grazing and, you know, a few weeks you have some little green shoots coming up. doesn't work like that with orchids. You have to have that fungi present. Mm. And um, if you even if you sprinkle seed around a pot like this, and we know the fungi's there, your success rate, you might only get one or two seedlings come up. But doing it in the laboratory, you basically get very high germination rates. Mm. And uh, that's the important thing. And then they can be grown on. The one good thing about the terrestrials is it's typically only three years to flowering. So we can have a, you know, a seed germinated, da da da, through, and, and they'll be flowering in three years. And, and that which is, you, you see results fairly quickly. The plants mature quite rapidly as opposed to them. If, if you've got a seedling of, of the Sydney rock orchid, for argument's sake, you're typically waiting anything from 15 to 20 years to mm. see it flower. Yes. You know, so they're, they're, they're quite different in that, that mm. aspect. So these are all the things that are, that are going on and, uh, and being involved. There, there's obviously a few things that are still proving troublesome, some, some species. But um, the more we're learning, that's the only way is to get in there, try things out, and you have some success, you have some failures. Mm. So your propagation, does it always come from germination of seed? Do you ever try tissue culture, for instance? That's no, all germination. It's all germination. All germination from seed. Wow. And then they're flasks, and it all got to be done under sterile conditions, yes, as you'd of course, appreciate, of and, uh, and that sort of thing. And then the plants, when they're mature enough, the seedlings are then put into basically forestry tubes, and tube stock and growing on in the nursery, and uh, then they're transported out to wherever the reintroduction sites might be. And what sort of level of monitoring do you then need once you've planted them out in the wild? Again, that's that's where the various, like the conservation group, will do regular visits back to an area. Again, a lot of the department people too, which is again with that, you know, in in that particular area, might be Horsham area or somewhere like that, Wimra, Mallee, you know, they'll have field officers that can go out and check that particular site mm. regularly just to see what's going on in case there's any things. I mean, in some cases, we've even installed irrigation systems, um, just just gravity gravity feed tanks and drip, drip lines so that, you know, if it's been particularly dry, the thing can be, you know, easily, you know, irrigated. Um, then you get into situations where you do that and the rats come along and chew oh. through the irrigation lines and all these uh, sorts of things. Fun and fun and games, but it'd be a mighty way to see a bit of countryside, I'd mentioned. Well, oh, yeah. How many members do you have? In your um, we, we have oh, roughly a bit over 400, but when yeah. I say that, we, we, duck, we count uh, like a, a, a couple as one, mem- as, as one membership. Yeah, right. Yeah. We, don't, we don't have family memberships. Yeah. Just, it's just the one membership. So there's probably closer to 600-odd people wow. all, all up oh, when, you, when you look at it that way. But, uh, yeah, the only trap with some of these things where you've got watering systems in remote areas, you've got to carry the water in. Oh, <laughs> goodness. <laughs> My word. Need good trolleys. <laughs> yes, yes, or a strong back. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking of, of places like Ned Station, which is a, a, a conservation station in, in far west Victoria, and I was just thinking of those sorts of places which are, you know, fencing their areas, yep. and if, if yep. that's a, some sort of um, thing that you get involved with. Is that Ned's Corner you're talking yeah. about? Ned's Corner, that's yeah. one of our areas. Yeah. Yes, most definitely. Okay, so yep. yeah, so yep. you do work in with yep. people like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yep. Wow, it's been fascinating Richard it really has um, we are running out of time but we must remind listeners of a few things before we go firstly 
the Native Orchid Show is on next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday. Can you give out the details again, Richard? Yes, it's at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, which is in Miller Crescent, Mount Waverley, right opposite Mount Waverley Railway Station. It's open from 9am to 4pm, both Saturday and Sunday, and it's $5 entrance and $3 for concession, and that gets you into the, the, the displays, the sales... The, uh, all the talks and demonstrations are free and the art and photography display, all that, all that's covered with your entry. Fantastic. Brilliant. Uh, Secret Gardens of the Danny Nong Ranges. People do need to go to that website to, to book and if they want to go. Quickly, yes, go to the website and it's yes. all laid out and, yep. and, um, it's happening and, and don't leave it till the last moment. Absolutely not. So just, just type in Secret Gardens, plural of the Dandenong Ranges, and it should all come up. Yep. Yep, fantastic. And just a quick reminder to listeners too, and I will, I will mention this in the next weeks uh, to come, but uh, the big uh, Diggers Club Cloud Hill Spring Garden Weekend is coming up um, Saturday the 13th, Sunday the 14th of October. There's going to be lots and lots of free activities and free mini workshop programs. Um, so, uh, and of course the address is up at Cloud Hill Gardens at 89 Linda Monbolk Road there in Linda. So, uh, there's so much happening. It is spring. <laughs> it is spring. <laughs> a big thank you to, uh, all the team on air this morning and also to Rosemary and Robin who've been handling all the phones for us. Of course, uh, although it's time for us to go, we will be back again next Sunday, 7.30. So until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.